This bonus episode of the unofficial Shopify podcast is made possible through a contribution by Rewind. Rewind is the top-rated backup app for Shopify. Think of it like Mac OS's time machine, but for your Shopify store. Not only is it one of the very few apps we use in my wife's Shopify store, it's literally the only app that I recommend to 100% of merchants because you will never regret having backups. So if you want to stop living dangerously and start automating your backups right now, check out rewind.io. We'll talk more about it later in the show with a special offer. Hello and welcome back to the unofficial Shopify podcast. I'm your host, Kurt Elster. And my guest today, joining me in studio, or in office rather, has never taken a class in web development. She's never attended a coding boot camp. Amid a sea of white guys and comp sci majors, of which I am mostly both, she's a unicorn, a self-taught female developer. At the age of 24, she quit her job to freelance full-time, and in her first year, earned $137,000. I found this by Googling her. She didn't even tell me this. Uh... Joining me in studio is Kelly Vaughn, founder of the all-female Shopify agency, The Tap Room. Kelly, welcome. Thank you. Ah, you found my deepest, darkest secret. It, it well, it was on the first page of Google for your name. Yeah, it's, it's so, pretty easy to find. Also, your darkest secret is earning six figures. You know, as soon as my friends saw that article get published, they're like, "I'm never paying for dinner again." <laughs> yeah, it's a little weird. Like, I don't know what's it like putting your just declaring to the world your income. Um, it's a it's a little unsettling because everything is out there in the open. But I mean, it's there. So what am I going to do now? I usually have to explain that I'm not actually making one hundred thirty seven thousand dollars a year every year. Well, so was that a fluke? It wasn't. Okay, so it wasn't. I I actually did make that much in that year, but I also totally overworked myself to the point where nobody should actually be working that many hours. Because I think that was the year I quit my full time job which was a fellowship at CDC and they were paying me 45,000 a year. And that was from February through September. And then all the rest was freelance income up until I went full-time freelance in September. So I was working, I was basically moonlighting and working on weekends all through uh, February through September. And then I finally went full-time and I was still working full hour day or full eight hour days plus evenings plus weekends. And how long ago was this? This was 2015. 2015. Okay. And so you were uh, you had a full-time gig at the Center for Disease Control? Correct. So what did you go to school for? So my bachelor's is in psychology, and I have two master's degrees in clinical social work and public health. Uh, really related, I know. I was going to say, and that got you into web development how? So my web development career started, not my career, I started learning how to code when I was 11. Um, I was a member on the website Neopets, which a lot of millennials are familiar with. Um, I really wanted to build my own community on there and to customize it required you to know how to code. So I asked my dad for an HTML book and that's when it all started. I actually got my first freelance client when I was 14 years old. Whoa. I was paid the high, high price of a t-shirt. You got paid a t-shirt. Okay. And so it was actually in my dad's size, so it he got the t-shirt. <laughs> but what's really cool is 
he actually ended up keeping it for a long time and it turned into a dust rag. And in several moves, obviously, I'm, it's, I'm 28 now, so it's been 14 years. He still has the shirt and he was going through cleaning up uh, his laundry room and he finds the shirt in the pile of dust rags. And he's like, I'm going to clean this up and surprise her with it. So he shows up at my co-working space one day and hands me the t-shirt and I actually have a picture of it. It's still like the, the company name, like Taylor's Hunting Supplies, which no longer exists, unfortunately, because I would have loved to see that website now. But it's, yeah. all, it's, it's fun to go back and look at the sites that you worked on years ago. And it's the most fun when like they've kept the site or like have done some iteration on it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the coolest. You're like, man, they took what I did and they made it better. Or sometimes it's better. So, yeah, sometimes <laughs> it's better. It's different. It's different. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Okay. So four years ago, you find yourself suddenly making money as a web developer, um, quit your full-time decent gig at the CDC, and making what many people be like would say, well, you're getting paid too much. Or, we don't listen to those haters. We don't listen to those. No. Um, so how do you make that job? That's very fast. That's way. It took me much longer than that to make any damn money. Uh, how do you go so, ramp up so quickly m- with a consulting practice? And I swear to God, this is coming around to Shopify people. It does. Yeah, it eventually will. So while I was freelancing, I was, or while I was working full time, I was still freelancing. So I was building up a client base and I had some people who were giving me overflow work. So while I'm building out my portfolio, I have some more work coming in from other people. So by the time I can go full time come September, I basically was able to hit the ground running, which provided me a really great opportunity to make a lot of money in Q4. Okay. Um, and then like, what happened next? Because two years ago, that was four years ago, and two years ago you started a uh, Shopify agency called The Tap Room. What happened in between? How do you go from where you were, which was just generalist web development, but making uh, real money doing it, to Shopify? So one of those colleagues who was passing me work asked me if I'd be willing to work on an e-commerce site, which I'd n- never done before. But I was like, sure, I'll take anything you give me. I'll give it a shot and ended up being a a Shopify store. And as soon as I started digging into the code, I was like, okay, this is a lot of fun. I'm purely front, I'm a purely front end developer. So getting to dig into Shopify theming and just learning the basics of uh, Shopify's liquid uh, Ruby based language. It was a really, it was not a a steep learning curve at all. And I immediately took to wanting to build more and more Shopify stores. So that just kind of launched my, launched my focus on working with Shopify. And what, uh, when did you start working with other people? Because you've got an agency. How did that happen? So I was partnering with other freelancers for quite some time. And actually in a year after, so it would have been 2016, uh, MailChimp interviewed me for their MailChimp for Agencies newsletter. And in that newsletter, I talked about how I never actually wanted to start an agency, that I like this kind of hybrid model of just partnering with other freelancers. But I found myself kind of hitting a wall on the type of work I could take on because I was working under like just Kelly Vaughn Creative, a basic freelance name. And larger companies didn't want just one person working on their website for the most part. They wanted a team. And even though I had a team of people to work behind me, it didn't look like that from the front. So I, that's when I decided that I was going to go ahead and rebrand to actually start an agency. And we've got the Taproom Agency. How many people are there now? We have 10 people right now. 10 people. That's very good. Is it all remote? It is all remote. So about half of us live in the metro Atlanta area, so we can work together. And 
uh, I have two full-time employees. One of them works uh, with me once a week in the office, and the other one works with me three times a week in the office. But everyone can really work wherever. I think that's a, g- a good way to do it, kind of blend remote work with, it's, like, yeah. regular check-ins. It's nice because you're able to, you know, meet face-to-face when you need to, and it creates, like, a different connection with them because you you can definitely form a stronger connection with people when you're actually speaking to them face-to-face. Yeah, absolutely. Like, remote work has so many positives, but it's not exclusively good. It's still powerful to have that um, that FaceTime. Absolutely. But, yeah, I mean, having built that in your entire career is incredible. Having built, uh, watched you build this agency so quickly has been incredible. I would describe your rise amongst uh, web agencies and Shopify partners is is meteoric. I mean, it's just incredible. It's been it's been a whirlwind. We turned one in November of 2018, and we surpassed our uh, our revenue goal for that for a very first year, and we're aiming to more than double it this year. So, with the tap room, is it exclusively Shopify? It is exclusively Shopify. How'd you make that decision? I actually made that decision back when I was still freelancing before I started the tap room. Um, I was doing both WordPress and Shopify at the, t- same, at the same time. And as a developer, the, 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 the skills you use to build Shopify stores versus the skills you use to build WordPress sites is like using your left brain versus your right brain. It was requiring me to switch between them too frequently. So I decided I'm getting enough work coming in from Shopify stores. I'm just going to go focus on that instead. It was a pretty easy transition, actually. So within, um, it sounds like for Shopify, it's mostly, it's front-end work, theme development, uh, store setups, that sort of thing? Right. Any other service offerings in there I should know about? Yeah. So we are a full-service marketing agency. So we do everything from setting up a new store to migrating you over to Shopify. So we do all the data migration ourselves. Uh, oh, and offer, email, because you're a big MailChimp person. Yes. So we do offer email, uh, email marketing strategy, full social content strategy as well, um, and also SEO strategy too. What goes into social strategy? So our digital marketing strategist, uh, she's our she's our Scottish team member. Cool. Um, she. You just hired for the accent, did you? She's actually one of my best friends. So it's it's kind of fun working with one of my one of my best friends. Um, she is a genius when it comes to social strategy. So she will do a deep dive into your business, who your competitors are, who you're, you know, who you should be marketing to, and builds out individual strategies for each social marketing platform you should be focusing on, plus email. And by the end of it, you have this like 70 page document you can use to refer back to for everything you need for social. That that sounds amazing. It's a novel. Yeah. Um, all right. One thing I noticed and I have I have enjoyed is your Twitter feed, yes. which is full of, of developer jokes and snark and is a lot of fun and is also full of, of maddening replies in there. You've got 20,000 followers on Twitter. Tell me about the horror show that is your your Twitter mentions <laughs> as a popular developer female on the internet yeah so lord have mercy it is it's it's a a full-time job reading my my mentions and for the most part i try to avoid them um especially my my dms because i get some really interesting messages from men um i've been propositioned multiple times um one of my favorites was when somebody actually sent a group dm to me and one other girl on Twitter hitting on us at the same time. And I mean, I applaud him for his efficiency, but surely he knew that he would have known that wouldn't work. Also, we're both married. Yeah. <laughs> when we're both very clear about that on our Twitter bios too. Yeah, well, now now's your chance to address all of all of the creeps as a whole to preempt them. What message do you have? Um, I am very much married and I love my husband and just enjoy my tweets instead. Yeah, I don't know what the like my 
my wife's Instagram, it's like nonstop just messages from dudes and they all say hi. Yeah, and that's the thing. I don't get anything thing. like that. They don't they don't say anything more. I I can go through and read my DMs and a lot of them are just like, hi, hello, hi. And I'm like, I'm not going to just like respond to that and start a conversation. I don't know what's going to come next and I don't want to chance that. I don't know what like and that what the story you're telling is is one hundred percent like par for the course. Yeah. It's so weird. I don't get it. Like, what's the end game? What's the next step? Because my wife's never replied to any of those. Yeah. She's like, I don't want to know what comes after this. Surely people would figure out that nothing actually works in that. I've also received a, a DM from somebody who um, sent me their resume with their picture on it as a proposition. <laughs> I don't know if that was like, you're cute, also hire me. Or I, I have no idea what the end goal was for that. I don't think people think through. What I think their, that's the their problem. End game is. That's the internet. It feels like it would be terrible to be a woman on the internet. It's it's a it's a it's an experience. It's a job. You've got twenty thousand followers. What's the trick? What's the magic there? What advice do you have for someone who's like, I want to grow my social media following? Because clearly, you have organically figured it out for yourself. Yeah, yeah. So it's all about building your personal brand. So figure out what it is you want to focus on. In my case, I like doing really ridiculous developer jokes on mine. Um, being a woman in tech as well is another focus, obviously. And basically, when, you, when you're sending out these tweets, you want to you focus them on your direct audience, but also make the tweets general enough to relate to people outside of that audience, too. And that's how you end up getting tweets that go viral. You got an example of one of your, your viral tweets? And when you say viral, you're, you're talking thousands of retweets. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, my first tweet that went viral was actually making fun of clients Uh oh it was basically like who are we clients what do we want we don't know when do we want it right now oh, and that was <laughs> liked i think eighty six thousand times including oh clients and i actually got two leads from that as well so clients saw it thought it was funny and were like oh i want to work with them huh so they could relate to it they could empathize with it yeah hmm. it's, it's it's light humor it's just light poking it wasn't malicious but the nice thing about that tweet is that it doesn't matter whether you're in development, you're running an agency, a lot of different businesses have clients. So it, it relates to a lot of people. I think a lot of uh, people who work at salons really appreciated that. That and lawyers. Hmm. It's a good point. So on the topic of clients and the, the tweet that netted you a couple of clients, what does your typical client look like? With whom do you do the best work? Yeah. So because we're a team of 10 women, we end up working in the verticals of home goods, apparel, gift shops, a lot of boutiques, because we, we are their target audience, so we know exactly what it is that they want. Um, we tend to work with a lot of high-growth businesses, so businesses that are you know somewhere between, let's say, 500000 and maybe $2 million in revenue, who are trying to figure out how to take that next step, what to do to grow from there. And, well, that's a great question. How do they, they grow from there? So if, I'm, if I come to you and say, listen, I'm, I'm making half a million a year, I don't know what to do next. I feel like I'm going an inch every month. I feel like I went an inch in every direction. Yeah. So in basically a lot of what we do in that position is focus down on what it is their strategy should be, because it tends to be a lot of just grabbing at straws and seeing what sticks instead of investing your time into a, a very specific area. What are some examples you look for? Um, so a lot of it comes into, into your, your marketing strategy, honestly, from uh, the email standpoint, especially. So a lot of people are not taking full advantage of what their email marketing platform can offer them. And we look for opportunities to maybe rewrite their welcome series or their abandoned cart strategy to send out more than one email. 
Um, and make sure like the the voice, the messaging matches how they communicate across platforms, whether it's their website or social media accounts as well. So the trick, so often um, you're saying, okay, the solution here is let's focus, like if you got this far to half a million, often the thing they didn't look at is retention, um, which you can measure as a key performance indicator is like uh, return customer rate and customer lifetime value. And as soon as you see like, okay, they've got a great conversion rate, they've got great traffic, they've got a good average order value, the lever to pull here, the revenue generating lever is going to be customer lifetime value. And you do that via email and often it's like, yeah, they've got the basics and they use the platform, but they don't have you know a great welcome series. What other um, LTV generating tactics have you in your toolbox? So we are a big fan of finding opportunities for subscriptions. Uh, it's a really great way to build recurring revenue from your existing customer base. Um, a lot of people who are purchasing pretty on a regular basis, they like having some kind of re- something that is going to reward them over time. So maybe if they can subscribe to like a box of clothes every month or every three months, it gets them the clothes at a, a at a slight discount, for example. I like this idea. I love subscriptions because it's such an easy way to add predictable recurring revenue to a business. But realistically, it is when you're talking about conversions, it's hard enough to sell online. It's even harder to get someone to commit to a subscription because it's a recurring purchase, right? It is a much bigger ask Absolutely. for the person. What's a, a typical like adoption rate, you know, conversion rate? I don't know what you want to call it. Um, it helps set my expectations around a subscription program. That's really hard to say. Darn. <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to depend on what it is you're selling and uh, how many people you're currently marketing to as well. So the, um, well, let me rephrase it then. When you're considering these strategies for a client, who's a great fit for a subscription? Who's a bad fit for a subscription? As far as each customer goes? Uh, no, clients. When oh, you're looking clients. at the clients. Okay. Like, because you know in your head, like, all right, this is, this is someone I'd recommend do subscriptions. This is someone who should absolutely probably not. Yeah, yeah. So if you have a, a higher returning customer rate, then, uh, you know, if you have a product offering that's going to only offer kind of one-time use, you're not going to purchase it again for another year or you may never purchase it again. There's not really an opportunity so much for a subscription there. If it's something like I buy clothes pretty frequently or I take certain multivitamins, those kinds of things, if if it's a a product that people are going to take on a semi-regular basis or use on a semi-regular basis or it has like a certain lifespan... So those consumable are the opportunities. good automatically. Yes. Those are the kinds of opportunities you have for, for launching some kind of subscription model. The other nice thing is if you have a lot of, like you have a large inventory, a large number of SKUs, you can use that, you can use subscriptions actually as a way of kind of getting rid of old inventory as sort of like a, like a mystery box subscription of sorts. Like you can just kind of throw random things that happen to so be their size or whatever it is and it's a, surpri- it's a surprise box for them. Some of these these subscription boxes are actually just, here's your box of distressed inventory. Oh, absolutely. It's just like Amazon Prime Day. It's, that's literally what Amazon Prime Day is all about. It's not about selling new products. It's about, we need to get rid of this stuff, so let's heavily discount it and get it out the door. Hmm. And speaking of discount, with subscriptions, often it's as an incentive to get people onto continuity, you say, hey, you could buy once for 20 bucks or subscribe for $16 a month. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. So now there's a percentage discount to incentivize them. Is that uh, typical? Is there a standard uh, percentage you go with? I would say don't go more than 10%. I think, I think 10% is more than enough to get people to sign on. 
Um, it's also, and you also don't have to give like a set percentage off of the actual item. It could be you offer free shipping through the subscription. If you have to pay for shipping anyway, um, maybe you have like a free shipping threshold of $50, but this item they're subscribing to is only $30. They're never going to hit that free shipping threshold, but by offering free shipping with it, they're much more likely to subscribe to it. Okay. And uh, all right. So backing up, you talked to, I'd asked, Hey, what's your, your, your typical or ideal client look like? And you had said, um, High growth merchants. Um, is there a particular vertical? You said like you know, uh, women-owned businesses. Is there a, a particular vertical that you focus on? Uh, we don't actually focus on any specific vertical, just to keep things interesting on our end. We just have a a strong portfolio leaning towards the home goods, uh, the apparel, uh, the accessories, gifts, those kinds of things. Things women love. Let's take a quick break to talk about screwing up. Human error happens. Maybe you upload a product spreadsheet with errors and wreck your product catalog, or you accidentally delete a collection that you didn't mean to. Common myth, Shopify can help you restore things you've deleted or accidentally changed. Untrue, it can't. Myth busted. Shopify has no native backups. So what do you do? Use Rewind. Rewind should be the first app you install to protect your store against human error, misbehaving apps, or rogue collaborators gone bad. It's like a magic undo button to recover from the smaller mistakes, like when you've installed an app and it messes up your theme, or bigger disasters like CSV imports gone awry. Trusted by over 20,000 businesses, from side hustles to the biggest plus stores like Gymshark and Movement, Rewind will save you from your next uh-oh moment. Check it out at rewind.io or search Rewind in the Shopify app store. And when you do install it, email help at rewind.io, mention the unofficial Shopify podcast, and get your first month absolutely free. In the home goods business, what are some common problems faced in that niche? So home goods can range from, I mean, it really depends on the what part of home goods you're in, because a lot of home goods businesses may have very high price point items, things that you don't often purchase online. Maybe they're like custom made tables that start at $4,000 or uh, we recently launched a, a site that does, uh, they, they'll come and install carpet for you. And, you know, each purchase could be, you know, two, five, ten thousand $10,000. And that's an entire purchase that you have to make online. And so building that kind of trust to sell those high price point items is much more difficult than it is to, you know, drop five, ten, even $30 on a single item. When looking at a store, one of the first things I want to know is like, hey, what's your average order value? Because there's a big difference in how you treat and market and scale a store that sell, that's got an average order value of 40 bucks and a store that has an average, average order value of 400 and 4,000. Absolutely. So yeah, if you've got this, this service-based business where they're selling carpet installed and average order value is $2,000, wow, that's a lot different. Um, tell me, like, what, um, how would you approach that differently? How should they approach that differently? If you've got, your, let's say, a home goods store that's got a, a four-figure average order value. That's a really good question. <laughs> I don't have, I don't, I, I, it really depends on who we're working with at that given moment and what kind of, like, you know, where they're currently at with uh, marketing their products. Um, we usually find opportunities for improvements over what they're currently doing. So maybe they're not doing a, a good enough job establishing trust uh, from the get-go or maybe they're not speaking on a high enough level to be like, we are a premium product. I like it. All right, so... We need to do, you're right, we need to establish trust and we need to communicate the value of the brand as a premium brand. 
how and I think the thing I often see with um with those those much more expensive premium uh three figure and four figure brands like in terms of average order value is it becomes much more you become much more sensitive to any issues errors problems on the site where like a typo something like that is minor on anywhere else like it's not amazing but it's not the end of the world on a premium site suddenly those things become glaring issues so you have to have a really polished experience and you know the customer's not buying from Amazon. They got to buy from you. And so you have, they don't know you. You have to establish that trust. So I think there's a lot of um, busting objections and communicating social proof uh, that helps. I absolutely agree with all of that. I think it's also important to remember that the time to purchase is definitely going to be increased. So oh, yeah, yeah. have patience with full t- like conversions to get to get to the point where people are visiting your site to actually placing the order. The chances of them purchasing on their first visit is much, much less likely to happen. So how does that change your approach? If we know um, it's going to have this very long uh, life cycle. This is the kind of situation where you want to be building a customer relationship with them from day one and you want to continue having that messaging uh, back and forth with them. You know, when you're like, in, I'm just using email marketing, for example, here, this is when these these flows, these email series are so important about educating the potential customer about who you are, why they should buy from you, you know, include that social proof in the email in the email messaging as well, and just teach them about why it is that this premium product is worth buying. Of these merchants, what do you see, like regardless of niche or space, what do you see successful merchants do that other merchants don't? I see the more successful merchants focusing more on engaging with their current customers than shifting their full focus to bringing in new customers. It's much cheaper to get an existing customer to buy again and to be a brand ambassador for your brand than it is to attract new business. Your your existing customers are your best form of recurring revenue. Is there you know when you're when you're buying something online, you're my, you're most likely to ask a friend or family member for a recommendation, and these are the kinds of people that you want to be focusing on. Um, another another big one on the same kind of line of topic of something that you could do is add in some kind of referral program. Make it worthwhile for your customers to to spread your brand's name. It sounds like the the successful, the really successful ones, the ones that scale well, is once they have a validated, steady business. The trick is to focus on retention and customer lifetime value, and the the tools to do that are subscriptions, lifecycle emails, referral programs, loyalty programs. Correct. Well, it's all right. So let's walk through your favorite tools for those. What's Preferred subscription software and why? I am a big fan of Recharge. To, and you, we were you're in our office today. This morning, we we're uh, having an issue uh, troubleshooting a customized Recharge form, and you were like, "Oh yeah, I know Recharge," and helped us figure it out, <laughs> which is great. Um, what? What's? Uh, why do you prefer it? What's your love of Recharge? I love Recharge because they the entire business exists to focus on Shopify stores and building out a subscription model for Shopify stores. They, they don't spread their focus anywhere else. So when you need support, you know exactly you're going to be speaking to somebody who knows Recharge front and back, and they know how to help you with that issue. From a developer standpoint, it's one of the most highly customizable options out there, and their API just continues to grow and grow and grow. So it gives you the tools you need to build out a very, very custom solution, regardless of whatever it is that needs to happen. 
well, I had written down lifetime value, but really like life cycle email, I think is the way to achieve that. Right. Um, what would be your, your email software preference? Uh, for building out these flows and continuing as, as a high growth business, I highly recommend Klaviyo. Yes. What do you love about Klaviyo? <laughs> I can get lost in building out segments and flows. I can I can spend so much time digging into the analytics that are available for each customer profile and their their customer lifetime value feature and like uh, the ability to see what kind of time frame you can expect the next purchase to come in that from that customer. Cool. It's it's genius and it's so easy to use that tool to really target that those customers to actually make that that purchase happen. And what's your what's your favorite uh, off the top of your head favorite Clavio flow? I I can just spend all day on on welcome series. I know it sounds kind of boring, but it's so important though. It's so important to have a, a strong welcome series. Uh and the well, what about favorite segment? Like if you had to give me a suggestion that people may not be thinking of for uh, doing email follow-ups or segmenting email in a clever way. So I'm going back to the subscription example here. So let's say you're using Recharge or I guess other subscription pro- uh, apps might integrate with Klaviyo. Um, but you can actually check to see how often somebody is purchasing the same item over like a certain ser- a certain amount of time. And you can create a flow to or create a segment to generate that and then automatically send the email out when they're like, oh, we're seeing that you're purchasing this item a lot. Thanks. We think you would love to subscribe to it. Here's 10% off. And Yeah, that one is pretty good. Um, and there's, a, I noticed like there's some implied social proof there. Absolutely. Yeah. What else I got? Oh, referral program. How do you tackle that? Yeah. So I'm a big fan of Smile.io for referrals and loyalty. Wait, referrals and loyalty. I didn't realize it did because I've been using... Refersion for referrals. I use Refersion for referrals as well. Um, now I'm pulling up the Smile web- the Smile website. But Smile's amazing for loyalty. I suppose like there's some confusion between the two, but loyalty being spend like for every dollar you spend, we're going to give you points that you can then turn back into dollars or discounts in the store. Referral being, hey, you like here's a link or coupon code, recommend our product, and then we'll give you, we'll pay you. X percent of what your referees, your referrals buy. And Smile.io does both of those built into one system. So you don't have to manage two different separate or two separate systems for uh, for points and rewards, which makes it makes life much easier on the on the merchant side to focus on just one system. I had no idea Smile did that. (laughs) Today you learned. Yeah, there we go. I learned something. I can go home now. Yeah, get out of here. We're done now. Hey, let's flip the question. What do you think unsuccessful merchants do that the successful merchants don't? One of my favorite things to talk about as far as messing up your website is focusing on yourself. When it comes at the end of the day, customers are visiting your website because they want to know what's in it for them. How can they benefit from it? And if you're focusing too much on yourself, your message, like I am the founder of this company Nobody really cares at the end of the day. Like there's a there's a point where people are like, who am I buying from? But like, let's take your your FAQs, for example. Your FAQs should be written in first person from the customer perspective as far as questions go. How do I start a return? What happens if my package comes uh, damaged or something? It, it actually makes it. Uh, from a from a psychological standpoint, it makes a stronger impact to the customer if they know that they're. It's like, oh yeah, that's me. I can click on that. That makes sense. As opposed to re, uh, return policy or you know whatever it is. I'm tr- I'm struggling at coming up with examples right now. 
So if I'm on, well, here, let's, let's go with a really pointed example. The headline for the shopping cart page should not be cart. It should not be your cart. It should be my, my cart. cart. Exactly. There we go. Yes. Okay. Simple uh, and surprising. Most, pe- most people will get this one wrong. Yeah. Uh, like, I see it's, this all the time. It's something that people don't really think about. They don't spend much time focusing on the messaging from that specific standpoint. But it can make a huge difference. The other vertical you've got uh, a lot of experience with is clothing. And you've got some very successful um, clients selling uh, selling apparel online. And this I find like to be one of the toughest, most competitive spaces to be in. Absolutely. What uh, What's some of your advice there for people who may be considering a online, we'll call it an online boutique, or have one? Yeah, the the apparel industry is brutal when it comes to competition. I've I've seen the the dirty things that these these boutiques will do against each other. Oh, give me an example. Um, if you don't purchase the misspelling of your domain name, another boutique will and redirect it to their site. Whoa! It's and it's like the most basic things, but like. I remember uh, a previous client once told me that that they bought, I think, like 12 different variations of spellings from a competitor's domain name so they could start generating that business because that business had done it to them first. <laughs> so they did it to each other. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's it's there's no there's no real sense of I don't want to say this uh, in, in certain situations. There might not really be much of a sense of community over competition. Okay. It would, because I, I will it is, say that's not the that's not you know true across the board. Um, there's a there's a really great organization called the Boutique Hub that actually empowers this this idea of community over competition, where they will talk about you know where you can get uh, certain items from certain vendors and your experience with working with those vendors, and just share those ideas so you can all grow together. Well, the, all right. So number one, we got to go buy misspellings of domain names. That's <laughs> Do that your, for your own website. That's your number one tip. Buy it for your own website so that other people can't. Yes. Yeah, and a client asked me the other day, he said, oh, should I get the .com version of my domain name? Because I've got the .net now. And, you know, will that have any advantage to me? And I said, well, as far as, like, traffic and growing your business, probably not. But own it so that someone else doesn't. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not usually a fan of domain squatting, which is purchasing all these domain names to never use them. But this is the one situation where it's actually useful to buy up all these domain names that are actually relevant to your own business and redirect them to your main website. As a web developer, I bet you own at least 40 domain names. I Yeah, I'll have an idea and I'll buy a domain name. I think my most recent one that I bought was uh, Lorem Kitsum. I was going to make <laughs> a, a filler text of just like cat phrases. Oh, see, that's brilliant. Except you should that do that. I, I also found out later that that's something that actually already exists so I haven't actually done anything with it yet, but I do own a couple of variations of the domains just in case I decide to get not just one do it. domain, multiple, multiple, yes, for your cat. I take my own advice. Some generator. Okay. Um, well, back. All right. So going back to the clothing, you know, what are common problems faced by um, fashion and apparel sellers, and how do you solve them? Give me There's, like one through three, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. So number number one, a lot of your strategy needs to focus on social. Uh, a vast majority of boutiques get their business directly from from social media. Usually, it's Instagram because you're posting pictures of your 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 dress or your 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 apparel. Um, number two is build out some kind of brand ambassador program. These are these it, it, and it can be as simple as like 
having these customers post pictures of themselves on Instagram wearing the clothes that you sell. Especially since people love posting pictures of themselves on the internet anyway, you might as well benefit from it. How do you encourage that behavior? Um, you can do it through a loyalty program. But Which honestly, you would advertise through lifecycle emails. <laughs> yes. There we go. It all comes back it together. It all comes back. But honestly, it, like I said, in this in this industry, people love posting pictures of themselves. So it's, it's posting pictures of themselves in their best light. And then people love having that kind of photo promoted. Hmm. So, like, if you're in that space, you should be doing this almost as a service to your customers. Absolutely. They okay. will thank you for this. And number three, it is so important if you're in the apparel industry to have very high quality photos. You need to have really great flat lay photos. And you need to have actual lifestyle photos of people wearing the clothing. People want to see what it will look like on them. And if you have, if you have a range of, of sizes, if you have a range of models who can wear it, Show show the same clothing in with different people wearing it who are different sizes. Yeah, because I can't come try it on. I can't see it. I can't even hold it up to myself as if that does anything. Right. Um, and so offering these different photos and showing it on different models, oh my gosh, now suddenly I have a frame of reference. Absolutely. And number four, as a little bonus, include a size guide on your page, on every single product page, especially if you're selling from different vendors. Include that size, that vendor's size guide directly on that page. One of the, the tricks we do with the size guides to make sure that people don't miss them because it's so important and helps reduce returns as well, returns and exchanges. Screenshot it, make it one of the last product photo. Yeah, that's Everybody a, goes that's to a the great photos. way to do it. And usually there's a, quite often on, on boutique websites, there'll be a section for like model as in like who is actually wearing the clothing. It'll have like their stats, you know, their, their height, weight, uh, pant size, bra size, that kind of thing. And then right next to it, it's going to have a viewer size guide. Yeah, no, that's a... That is a brilliant way to do it. Um, on my wife's site, until well, what we did for a while is we had a, a felt board, and she took her own product photos of her modeling her own shirts, and then had um, uh, one of those felt letter boards, and it was like model is wearing and it like size medium and is size and like had her dimensions. So it's like yeah, the whole internet knows your bra size, <laughs> but they have like here is a quick immediate vi- visual reference where you go in seconds. You understand, like, you you have a very good idea of, okay, this is the right size for me. And that's such a big objection in that space that you for have to sure. do everything you can to knock it out. Yeah. It, it requires a lot of work when you're selling apparel to, because people can't try those items on, return rates can be higher. So taking these extra steps, the additional photos, the size guides, and having real people wear the photos, it or real people wear the clothes, you can, it, it takes more time, it takes more effort, but it pays off in the end. So give me, coming to an end, uh, what's one thing you wish every Shopify merchant would do? Um, Hire a really great agency such as the Taproom. (laughs) All right, give me another one that's less (laughs) self-serving. Like be open to offering advice to new new businesses just getting started. These new merchants, it's it could be very daunting going into a space that already has you. You're starting with a lot of competition, but the more you're able to you know communicate with each other and share ideas and and not be so like neck and neck against each other, the more both of you can grow. A rising tide lifts all ships. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, Kelly, this has been fantastic. I appreciate your advice. Where could people go to learn more about you? Uh, you can visit thetaproom.com. It has all the information. And apparently you can also just Google my name and find an article about how much <laughs> I made in 2014 or 2015. 
I will uh, include in the show notes, I've got the tap room, I've got Kelly's Twitter, along with links to some of the apps we mentioned on today's show. Kelly, thank you. Thank you so much. This episode was made possible by our friends at Rewind. Automated backups with Rewind mean one less thing for you to worry about and spend time on. Most mistakes happen when stores are being updated, customized, or otherwise worked on. Feel confident when you invite consultants or new hires to work on your store and protect your reputation. Or maybe you're a Shopify partner like me. Why not join leading Shopify agencies like BVXL, Blue Switch, Milk Bottle Labs, and more in the Rewind Agency Partner Program? Learn more at rewind.io. The unofficial Shopify podcast is distributed by EtherCycle LLC. We'll be back next week with more value bombs for Shopify store owners. If you're looking for more high-quality and actionable advice on learning the business of e-commerce, join thousands of other Shopify store owners on our totally free newsletter at eCommerce Bootcamp. That's eCommerce-Bootcamp.com.